0: This morning's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his, chest, his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down To his home, justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This morning we continue our sermon ser- uh, sermon series, summer sermon series called Real Faith. We are learning about faith from popular movies and today's film is um, Dead Man Walking. So, Sister Helen Prejean is a Catholic nun in the order of St. Joseph and author of the 1993 memoir Dead Man Walking. The book recounts her experiences as a spiritual advisor to death row inmates in the Louisiana State Penitentiary. Our film, Dead Man Walking, was made after Susan Sarandon, the actress who plays Sister Helen in the film, read her book and pitched it to um, her friend, Tim Robbins, a fellow actor and director. In an interview, Sister Helen Prejean was asked what makes Dead Man Walking such a great film? She explains that while there have been plenty of other uh, formulaic movies about the death penalty, they have mostly been devoted to whether the person was actually guilty or not. Sister Helen asks, quote, What if you have a film that takes you over to both sides of the suffering? The victim's family and what they are suffering. Then the perpetrator or his mother and his sisters and his brothers and what they're suffering. Then also the suffering of the guards and the people that we hire to do the killing for us. All of this is suffering that we are bringing on ourselves by choosing, by taking the stance that it's okay for the government to decide that there are some people who have forfeited the right to life and we're going to take their life for what they did." End quote. So if you still haven't seen Dead Man Walking, I suggest you see it, because it's a really good movie, and or at least read Sister Helen's book. In the film, Matthew uh, Ponsoletti, Poncel- uh, a death row inmate who was convicted of raping and murdering two teenagers, writes to Sister Helen, asking her to come and help him make an appeal to the courts. So, she goes to meet him with plenty of pushback from her family and others in the religious community. Why are you doing this? You are in way over your head. He is a con man and nothing else, is what she was told. Her response was, well, he asked me to be here, so I came. As she attends the appeal hearings, Sister Helen is approached by the victim's families. They cannot understand how she could visit Matthew and even stand with him in court. Even worse, she was giving the murderer spiritual comfort while not having once visited them, the victims. Consequently, Sister Helen decides to go and visit the parents of Hope Percy, the teenage girl who was raped and murdered. Let's watch this scene where Sister Helen visits Mr. and Mrs. Percy who believes Sister Helen has finally seen the light and decided to take their side and abandon Matthew. Just a little note, it might be a little quiet, so we got to listen carefully. So, um, Mr. Um, Percy, he says, he is not human, he is an animal. For obvious reasons, uh, when Sister Helen begins to meet the families of the victims, she begins to have an inner conflict. The big question is, whose side is God on? Is God on the side of the victims, or is God on the side of Matthew Ponsoletti? It seems like everyone knows the answer clearly, except Sister Helen. So let me ask you, where, what side do you think God is on? Personally, I couldn't help but sympathize with Mr. and Mrs. Percy, and I'm sure all of you are in the same boat as me. What Matthew Ponsoletti did to their daughter was terribly and and, and just horrific. Any normal human being would think that Mr. Percy calling Matthew God's mistake is completely reasonable. How many of us might even throw in some extra expletives in there for good measure? Now, acknowledging the process of grief and that we are resurrection people that believe in forgiveness and mercy, how many of us would still be Christian minded enough to ever turn to love and forgiveness towards someone that has committed such a heinous act to someone we love? Most of us would think that God would never be on the side of a murderer. Of course, God is on our side, the good side. The right side, the righteous side. In today's gospel lesson, we hear Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and tax collector. Of course, the a Pharisee is supposed to be an upstanding religious person, and a tax collector is supposed to be a cotton artist and a traitor to his people. In the story, both men go to the temple to pray. However, each of them have a very different approach to prayer. The Pharisee is proud of his own piety, thankful that he is not like other people, that he is not like the thieves, adulterers, rogues, and, of course, the tax collector. The tax collector, on the other hand, is beating his chest and praying over and over, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus' conclusion is that it was the tax collector not the Pharisee who left the temple justified before God. Now, I will venture to say that, that most of us read this parable and a righteous outrage comes over us. We point the finger at the Pharisee as if we are the meek and humble tax collector. But we all know what Jesus does when he uses parables, he has a way of using these stories like a mirror. It makes us realize the ugly truth that when we point a finger at the Pharisee, we are really pointing it at ourselves. Remember what verse 9 said. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they are righteous and regarded others with contempt. How many of us think we are doing all right on our own? that we are doing a pretty good job of living more righteously than other people. How many of us look upon others with contempt and are glad that we are not like them? Now, I know I do. Now, I don't know if you know, but I go to church every Sunday. In fact, three times some Sundays. And I can get in some really righteous moods sometimes. I feel, sometimes I fall into a trap thinking... Why can't so-and-so be at church more often, too? I do it. Why can't they? Why are they going to play golf on Sunday morning? Why are they going on vacation and missing church on Sunday mornings? I don't do that. And I also give 10% of my salary. I'm not saying that to boast, but I'm going to say this to boast before taxes. (laughs) Now, why can't so-and-so do that, too? I am living a holy life. Why aren't they? Self-righteousness is so natural for us. The comparisons are so natural for us to fall victim to. The need to be God's favorite, to want to receive more of God's favor than our neighbor, is natural for us. That usually means not just puffing ourselves up, but to denigrate others. So why? Why is it that we keep reverting to this need to earn what we already have, God's favor, to maintain this hierarchy even in the kingdom of God? Now, have you ever asked a child, who do you love more, your mommy or daddy? Or maybe you have been asked the equivalent, which child do you love more? So I find it fun to ask people this because I love watching them squirm. I know I'm evil. (laughs) We usually struggle with this question, and I hope we struggle with this question. Uh, We want to say both, but I think we struggle to answer clearly because we assume that like many things in the world, there is only so much love to go around. If we love mom this much, we only have this much more love to give to dad. And if we love our oldest this much. We only have this much love left for our youngest. Just think about how many stories are also in the Bible where siblings are wrestling for the, places, the place of favor. There's so many. But friends, how much love do you think God has to give out? In my opinion, the most powerful scene in the movie is what happens in the walkway, as Matthew is taken to the death, chamber, uh, the death chamber, let's watch it together. If you couldn't hear the little mumbling-ish noise in the beginning, I couldn't understand it either because it's a very heavy southern accent. Props to Sean Penn. Um, he's actually complaining because he wanted to wear these boots to um, his execution and also that he had to wear diapers because that's kind of what they dress you up in um, before they take you to the... death death, death chamber. So Sister Helen is pretty clear throughout the entire film that God has plenty of love to go around, even to Matthew. And her kindness towards Matthew causes him to trust her. Trust her enough to finally come clean. So while he constantly denied that he murdered anybody throughout the film, even taking a lie detector test to prove himself, Matthew confesses to Sister Helen that he, in fact, committed murder. He is completely remorseful and repents. In the scene that we just watched, we see Sister Helen lifting Matthew up and making clear to him that in spite of his um, actions, he is loved by God. She wants the last thing Matthew to see before he dies It's to be a face of love, and that's her face. Here's what Sister Helen had to say about this scene in a radio interview. So she's actually talking about the actual time that this happened to her, because it's based on the real story. She says this, quote, He had said to me, Look, sister, you can't be there at the end and watch this, because it could scar you. You just pray for me and pray God holds up my legs "'as I make the walk. "'I just absolutely knew in my being,' I said. "'Pat,' which is Matthew's real name, "'I don't know what it's going to do to me. "'I've never been involved with this, but I know this. "'You are not going to die "'with every one of those witnesses there to see you die. "'I will be there, and you look at me, "'and I'll be the face of Christ.' This is not what Christ wants us to do. You look at me. I was strong. I was really strong. The grace comes up inside you. It was absolute. There was no question about it. He looked at me, and when I walked out of that killing chamber that night, that face, not just that he looked at me, but I was looking at him. It was such an experience of grace. It grabbed my soul, and I haven't been able to leave it since. The face of love is when we see injustice, and when we see hurt, and when we see suffering, we do not turn away and say, well, I'm neutral. That's why we gather around the story of Jesus. Remember his love for us. Why we gather around the Eucharist. Why we gather and feed on the scriptures that we drink from the scriptures, from the fountainhead of the scriptures. In those scriptures is where we encounter Jesus. Not the pious Jesus of all these images we build up, but the real Christ who's calling us to do what he did in the world, to be his hands, to be his eyes, to be his love in the world. That's going to be a challenge every day for our life. A sure sign of its energy and joy is when we are alive with the life of God in us, end quote. So, brothers and sisters, the good news is that our God is a God of abundance. There is plenty of God's love to go around. We have the pleasure of giving it away without restrictions of who gets it or how much they get. We are called to be the face of love. So, who is God asking you to be the face of love for? And sometimes, for us to be the face of love, we are called to jump headfirst into the shadows, into the darkest places. Christ in us goes with us, strengthening us for the task. Amen.